Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. In the week since George Floyd's murder, powerful consumer media and tech companies have pledged to actively combat systemic racism and support the Black Lives Matter movement. What do their track records of hiring, pay, and workplace culture for Black employees have to say? As one consultant told me, they're expected to perform Blackness for their white leadership. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, the responsibility and reality of corporations that want to be woke. Plus, two Atlanta artists open up about how their work reflects rebellion against racial injustice and the importance of leaning in to uncomfortable conversations. In order to move forward with some real progress, you got to get to the nitty gritty. you got to get down into it. You have to dive into those places that you don't want to accept. Art, race, rebellion, and radical self-love for this Juneteenth weekend. On Second Thought is coming up. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. While the deaths of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and Sandra Bland galvanized the Black Lives Matter movement, the killings of Rayshard Brooks, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery have forced America to reckon with centuries of racial injustice and police brutality in unprecedented ways. Not only have protests demanding change been widespread, but major corporations, some of which until now have been silent, are pledging to fight racial injustice and declaring support for Black Lives Matter. We're here to talk more about the corporate responses and responses to the corporate responses is Tracy Jan. She's a reporter for The Washington Post who covers the intersection of economics and race. Tracy, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And also with us, Alexis Davis-Smith, president and CEO of Precise Communications. That's a PR firm here in Atlanta specializing in multicultural communications. Alexis, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Excited about this conversation today. Well, there's a lot going on here. I mean, since the protests began, a number of high-profile organizations across industries, we're talking Twitter, Walmart, L'Oreal, the NFL, have all issued statements in support of Black Lives Matter, which is remarkably different than seven years ago when the movement began, or even as recently as a couple months ago. Alexis, what do you think has changed from a corporate perspective? Virginia, I think what has changed is it's not just Black America who's conscious of what's going on. I think it's all of America who is finally what we like to say is woke. I think all of America has awakened to the racial issues that we have going on in this country. I think the fact that you had the Ahmad Arbery murder happen and then the George Floyd murder happen um, within a short time frame of each other and for us to see those things happen in such a brutal, vicious manner, there was no way that we could any longer say, that this isn't an issue. And we couldn't say that it was something that was only happening sometime. Um, again, I think that all of America, including white America, is really aware of the issues. And I think more importantly, they're ready for it to change. It's incumbent upon companies to take a role because they have the power and the influence and the resources to truly make a difference. Yeah, I was going to say that there is also a lot of skepticism about suddenly this corporate um, rush to proclaim that Black Lives Matter 
skepticism both from within their own companies, um, from employees who have long been complaining about systemic discrimination, systemic racism when it comes to hiring, promotion, pay gaps, as well as the fact that even just three years ago when Colin Kaepernick was being um, blacklisted from the NFL for protesting this very same thing on a national stage every Sunday, a lot of corporations stayed on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. The ones who did speak, most of them had given these very mealy mouth statements saying, we support the First Amendment and free speech and the right of these players to protest, but we also support the flag. I mean, mm -hmm. these things are not, it's not like, what does the flag have to do with this, you know, other than the fact that the president made it about the flag? Well, Tracy, that, that was part of the focus of the article that you worked with with colleagues at the Washington Post is looking at the records of some of these organizations and whether or not they actually stacked up to these statements. Can you give us some examples of where they did not match up necessarily? Well, for a lot of these organizations, I mean, this is a systemic problem in corporations across America, right, including in media, leadership at the very top levels, but when it comes to the executive team or the board level, are frankly very white. Um, for a lot of these industries, it's like less than 5% uh, black. And we're talking at a time when the average black family is only worth one-tenth of an average white family. And that's been the same for a very long time. On many measures, nothing has changed from 1968. So uh, the statement is not necessarily matching the actions. And I have seen, you know, posts on Twitter. Thanks for posting your Black Lives Matter banner. Now can you show me a photograph of your executive team or your board? That kind of thing. Right. Uh, well, so and, I, uh, Alexis, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, yes. you, you've been behind these corporate responses, obviously, from a public relations standpoint. So what kind of considerations are there going into taking that into account, what they are presenting versus what they are past or what their leadership looks like? Right, right. Well, one of the things that, you know, I said when all of this happened was that the African-American community in particular, and now I want to say America, was looking for every brand that they support to make some kind of statement. And what we have said to all of our clients in, in blogs and communications that we've shared as well is that these statements are just the beginning because now you have really opened yourself up to be scrutinized. And we have seen companies who have made some tremendous impact in doing community programs and consumer outreach, all those things on an external basis. But it's great to take care of the outside, which there's still a lot more work that needs to be done, but you have to have your own house ready. And so while you're making statements, employees, consumers, stakeholders are absolutely right to say, hey, but what about your, your, your board of directors? What about your senior leadership team? How many African-Americans do you have in your C-suite? Even how many um, African-Americans do you have on your communications, marketing, and advertising teams? Because if you had more people of color, you might not make some of these mistakes. And you may have been ahead of the curve as opposed to behind it. Right. Absolutely right. And I'm hearing, I mean, I think one of the pressure points, and I'm frankly, very impressed by a lot of these young black employees, workers at mm -hmm. companies who have a ton to lose. And they're speaking out publicly, accusing their um, CEOs of fostering toxic environments. One company, which was surprising for a lot of folks to hear about was Slack, which has actually cultivated a really welcoming um, reputation for black engineers. 
But even there, an engineer was commenting on Twitter about how her work in promoting diversity is not valued by the company. Wow. I'm speaking with Tracy Jan, reporter covering the intersection of race and the economy for The Washington Post, and also Alexis Davis-Smith. She's president and CEO of Precise Communications based in Atlanta. We're talking about the recent corporate rush to sign on to Black Lives Matter and whether or not they are living up to or plan to live up to the reputation and all that that requires. Alexis talked about how consumers are looking to corporations to come through with these messages. So say you are a company that has quietly sat on the sidelines and then Mm -hmm. realizes it's time for action, but you've also seen the backlash to some of the action. Where, Where do you go from there? The companies that have not actively communicated to African American consumers to come out with a message now looks a bit opportunistic. Um, there's a little bit of a catch-22 for them because in order to not say anything, then it looks like you don't care. But then if you do say something, then you're going to be challenged on, well, you never said anything before. Um, so, you know, my counsel has been to the companies that have not been active in the space is that they need to get to work. You can't talk about you care about, we see you, we hear you, we stand with you if you haven't done the real work in the community. So, so that's the first thing. But I do think that there are companies that have walked the talk, like a Ben and Jerry's, who have been very vocal about social justice. Definitely Nike. Nike was the very first statement I know that I saw. I think they were the first ones to to roll out with one. And I was not surprised by that. They were very bold in standing next to Colin Kaepernick, you know, a few years ago, and they have not backed down. And that's what consumers want today. Millennials, they are not our previous generations. They are not playing as we know. So I am hoping that this is a pivot into how companies execute their community relations programs, their PR, marketing, advertising, but definitely going back to look inside internally at their DNI practices. Because again, you cannot talk to external audiences about standing with you, caring about you, if you're not demonstrating that to the people that work for you and represent you on a daily basis. Well, and I think consumers, you know, as you've been talking about black consumers, millennials famously can sniff out whether or yes. not there are sincere efforts. And Tracy, I'm wondering about that. You know, Ben and Jerry's might be a company that we would absolutely expect this from. They've been sort of staunch liberals for a long time. Others that are surprising you or the backlash that they are getting or criticisms. Yeah, for example, at L'Oreal, uh, they posted a message quickly saying speaking out is worth it. Then a model, Monroe Burkdorf, call them out. And they, she said, wait a minute, in 2017, you fired me after I spoke out about racism and white supremacy after the neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville. And L'Oreal actually rehired her and they asked for her to serve on this new diversity and inclusion advisory board. And she graciously agreed. And you're absolutely right that millennials don't play because some of the people that we're hearing from the most are these very millennials that are speaking out publicly. One thing I wanted to add, though, is that as companies look inwards, they have to be careful not to put this burden on their Black employees. Mm -hmm. A lot of them see this as free labor, that they're suddenly expected to attend all these race talks, these touchy-feely meetings. And as one consultant told me, you know, they're expected to perform Blackness for their white leadership and talk about how difficult it is to be a Black in America 
but that's that's not their role and if that is something they're being asked to do they should be compensated for it can I add to that really quickly and the other interesting perspective from what I've heard um, not from clients but even just my network is that you have white colleagues that want to be allies this isn't just a black issue you have people that are not black who want to fix this and they want to take up active role they just don't have any direction how and if you have the leadership to stand up and say we're going to fix this issue you don't have to fix it yourself <laughs> it's going to happen leadership top down with collaboration from all of us but hearing from african americans and hearing their their experiences which i do think is important because sometimes it doesn't resonate until a person next to you tells you a story because a lot of times you work with these people and you think oh it happens to the person on the news or the guy that I saw with the baggy jeans on the bandana. No, it happens to your coworker who walks in the office every day with a shirt and tie and drives a Mercedes Benz. So I think it's important to have that collaboration and for companies to provide that direction on how we're going to fix this together. If you're saying we stand with you and we're in this together, then you have to demonstrate that and bring everybody together and offer the solutions and support those. I wrote a story four years after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, and immediately after he was killed, all these corporations rushed to make statements about how they're going to invest in the community. But what really happened was out after the initial flurry of attention, the investments that were made in Ferguson did not go to Southeast Ferguson, the neighborhood where Michael Brown was killed. It went to the wider, wealthier parts of Ferguson, the downtown core, and the border of Ferguson with some of the bordering suburban communities um, because that's where it was most easy to invest. If you went to Ferguson four years after the fact, a lot of the buildings that had been burnt um, to the ground during the protests were still burnt. Well, that's, I think, an excellent question, the whether or not this, you know, we've already seen commercials on television shift from, you know, COVID-19 based commercials to now Black Lives Matter based commercials. So they are seizing this moment. And I think similar to those who are out protesting, how can we sustain this in real ways? That's a question to you. Anything is that consumers can do to ensure companies are holding, we are holding feet to the fire of companies that are holding onto these messages and to make sure they're creating the kind of change that they're pledging to. Yes. Well, listen, you know, the African-American consumer market has $1.3 trillion in buying power. That is not a, a low number. And we drive the consumer market in pretty, in a, in a lot of different categories. So we have to begin to recognize that there is power in that. And, you know, we're big about cancel culture these days. If you see companies that are not walking the talk, then you can cancel them. You don't have to support them. You know, one of the things that we recognize is that and we've uh, worked with actually Nielsen in the past. You know, one of the things that they say, which we agree with, is that when you agree to support a company, you should always look into who do they support? Are they investing money in your community? Are they spending money advertising in the media outlets that you support and you consume? What does their advertising look like? Does it speak to you? Is it culturally relevant? Where do they stand in on civic and political issues? And I think people are starting to pay much more attention to those things now. And so far, I think from a consumer perspective, there will be a shift in purchasing patterns and how consumers really show their brand love to the companies that they support.
and there's already been immediate impact. It's consumer activists that have driven companies like Sephora to pledge to commit yes. at least 15% of their shelf space to dedicate towards Black-owned products. 15% is so little, but now they're actually being asked to display, put their money where their mouth is. Right. Okay, so Alexis, we're going to count on you for helping people to live up to their messaging. And Tracy, for you to go back and check and see if they're doing it. <laughs> yes, Tracy, please do that. That's our jobs. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you. Tracy Jan, reporter at The Washington Post, covers the intersection of race and the economy. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Alexis Davis-Smith. She's president and CEO of Precise Communications, PR firm in Atlanta. Alexis, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And coming up, a conversation about the arts, radical self-love, and race. That's when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Earlier this week, we talked with Carlton Mackey, director of the Ethics and the Arts program at the Emory University Center for Ethics and creator of Black Men Smile and Beautiful in Every Shade, and with photographer and filmmaker Melissa Alexander. Both are part of the Juneteenth Art Takeover. That's a temporary exhibit of works by black artists installed over the now boarded up windows of the Flatiron Building in downtown Atlanta. All of us at OST strongly believe that art can help us investigate and illuminate gaps in our understanding of each other and the world at large. You've likely seen those lists of books and films and songs intended to educate white people about systemic racism. Well, we wanted to counter that centering of the white experience and planned to talk with Carlton and Melissa about how they are engaging with the arts and their role as African-American artists at this pivotal time of reckoning with racial inequality and violence. But as you'll hear, the conversation probed much more deeply into the insidiousness of racism and questioning the sincerity of white people like me to dismantle a system that has benefited us. So let's get to it. I asked Melissa Alexander if she could share which books she has been turning to at this time. Most recently, I've been reading about Kwame Bratway, who is a photographer who is known for starting the Black is Beautiful movement in New York City in the early 1960s, late 50s, early 1960s, well before anyone was, you know, even calling themselves Black. People were still calling themselves Negro or colored, right? He was very vocal about wanting to be known as an African, about being known as a Black man. And he created an entire movement around this idea that Black is beautiful. Black is something to be celebrated, whether it comes from your hair, to the food you eat, to the clothes that you wear, the things that make us us, rather than changing to fit an ideal that society had created, it's really standing in yourself and appreciating yourself. So as an entrepreneur, as a photographer, as a filmmaker, I read about him and I'm just so incredibly inspired to do the very much the same thing. Kwame Brathwaite was part of the Black arts movement of the 60s and 70s, another time when America was confronting racial inequality. Carlton, how about now? What do you see the role of artists playing and what's going on right now when big questions are being asked and, and big demands are being made? I like to say that the role of the artist is to translate the longings of the hearts of the people 
And that is how I've, I've, in my own reflections, I've worked to think about the, the weight of what this moment means and my function as an artist. Um, people lean on us to represent them. We have a unique responsibility and role to proclaim the expressed desires to, to, to channel the righteous rage of the community that we are a part of, the, the wellspring from which our art comes. But even more importantly, because art is so important, the, the transformation is in showing us what we look like on the other side of the struggle and to give us a vision of what it might look like if we weren't simply downtrodden, if we weren't simply um, in this state of crisis. And, and I think one of the beautiful things that, that I've seen happening and that I wanna be a part of is showing a vision of, 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 of our strength, of our power, of our resilience, of our beauty, as a reminder that that which they say we are is not the final word. But I also want to hear some examples of the kind of things that you're talking about, that something that that transcended the moment and showed you something else, you know, a piece of artwork, a film, a music, um, something that you read, a poem, something that did that for you. I had to be reminded of the function of John Coltrane in my life recently, who is a pioneering, visionary, deeply spiritual um, prophet. He's canonized among black artists. And it is the sheer excellence of his execution when listening to him that you cannot deny the power of the black voice just belting and coming out of that horn. You just sit with it, particularly if you contextualize it to the time that he was creating this music. You're able to see that and feel his ever presence, but his calling us to a time beyond even time and space. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a deeply spiritual um, exercise, and I, I feel it and experience it every time I listen to his work. Pursuance there from John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. It's a go-to for my guest Carlton Mackey, artist, scholar, and creator of Black Men Smile and Beautiful in Every Shade. Also with me, Atlanta-based photographer Melissa Alexander, also known as Phyllis Iller. Really worth following on Instagram. Well, I do want to hear not only about the art that you're turning to, but what you're doing, the art you're doing, which includes a number of portraits but I want to talk about another series that you've been doing during quarantine. It's called Pull-Up Portraits. They're social distancing portraits. Can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration behind that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it came to me when a friend of mine, Olama, came to my house. This is right after, you know, they had put the mandate out that we were supposed to be social distancing. Um, and I had been feeling the effects of social distancing. I'm not necessarily the most touchy-feely person. Um, there was a moment where I realized that all I wanted was a hug, right? And, and understanding the power of a hug. It, it further revealed just how quickly we go from being with each other to being alone um, and, and how many people were feeling alone at that moment. So 
when Olama reached out to me and was like, I just need to see you. I'll stay in my car. You can stay on the sidewalk um, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll visit in that way. It's still six feet, right? Um, so as she stood there in front of my house in her car, or she eventually got out, her son was in the rooftop. I was looking at them and I, I thought, how amazing would it be just to capture this moment, to remember this moment? It, it, it was just so surreal, but the light was coming in very beautifully, right? So I was like, hold on a second. I ran in my house. And as I was opening the door back to come out to take their photo, I thought, pull up portraits, right? This is a way for, or it served as a way for us to remain connected, to always know that your feelings are valid, you are seen, you are appreciated, and it just became a thing. But again, it, it was because I wanted to be there for that. I wanted to capture that. You know, and the, 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 the grand scheme of what they put in the news was that Black people were dying at disproportionate amounts. Then you see, you know, you had Ahmad, you had George Floyd, you have all these different things that are going around in the news about us, right? But that's not my story. And I didn't want anyone to minimize us to just Black death because there's also Black joy. There's also Black life. There's also Black love. There's also Black pain. You know, we're a myriad of things. And I didn't want anyone to say that my silence was compliant. Like, and because of my silence that I agreed with it because I don't. <laughs> and yeah, I've had these conversations with Denine Milner. She started her own kids book imprint because, you know, as she said, kids don't want to read about Harriet Tubman all the time. You know, no. that the story is not just about the struggle, that it is about joy and creativity and warmth. And especially at, you know, a time like this, Carlton, I would love to know what you think about this, that kind of like, are we balancing the full human experience in, in the way that we are now talking about race in America because we are at this particular pain point? I think that there are two, two conversations that are being had or that are necessary. There is a very, there is a vital and important role for um, the architects of this American system and the architects of racism to have conversations about all of those things that are painful, maybe even for the first time. Um, for that pain to be transferred into maybe education, into courage, into um, modeling a form of, if not at least solidarity, a basic baseline education, which has been woefully ignored. So those things need to happen. There is a place and a function for them. And I think there's a place and a function for them, primarily for white people. Um, I think that there is a place and a function for a another form of a revolutionary act, and it is radical acts of self-care, radical acts of love um, by Black people, among Black people, on Black people, to counter uh, the epic amount of um, violence and misrepresentation and oppression that we are both seeing, but have been experiencing um, for hundreds of years. Uh, I've spent a considerable amount of time wondering if the effort that I'm putting into loving myself and working to maintain my sanity in this particular moment in history, if the effort that I'm putting into that is equal to the effort of the people who reap benefits from the system to 
work to dismantle it or to dismantle in their mind the very bricks that built the systems. And, And I am working hard to live and to flourish and to thrive. And I hope that you are working hard to understand why I'm in this position. Me personally? You personally and every person that's listening um, that that experiences privileges that I do not. It is so hard to untangle. I mean, I just know this in my own self and I am not even close to, you know, that experience of disassembling, dis- disintegrating the, the messaging that I grew up with, right? We all have our, our stuff. I do, I am kind of embarrassed by the reading lists, you know, because it's like, like everything else, you can purchase your way out of this. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like if you, if you read these seven books, you know, it's like the keto diet, like 21 days to get better at race, <laughs> you know, guaranteed results, you know, kind of thing. Um, this is all anybody is talking about that that I know about like how t- to do it better. Those are the conversations. This is all anybody is talking about. Well, that is me fumbling to lean into the discomfort of talking about race, as all the experts suggest we do. I realized only after that part of the awkwardness was that I was being asked to speak for all white people. And that is just a glimmer of what African Americans are asked to do all the time, to somehow represent the black community in word and in deed, and to be judged for it. He's not a mere child's play, but a madman. We're going to take a short break and come back to the conversation with Carlton Mackey and Melissa Alexander. In the meantime, leave you with a little bit of Charles Mingus and freedom. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. Your stubbornness is of the living, and cruel anxiety is about to die. Freedom for your daddy. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Let's get back to my conversation with photographer and filmmaker Melissa Alexander. She's also known as Phyllis Iller and the artist and scholar Carlton Mackey. We spoke just a couple of days after the shooting of Richard Brooks by an Atlanta police officer, further inflaming the rage that erupted after George Floyd was killed in police custody. And that anguish was fresh when we talked. Carlton created the Black Men Smile hashtag and platform to counter the flurry of painful and oppressive images and videos of black men that surfaced after the death of Michael Brown. Tens of thousands of people have posted portraits showing black people living in joy on the platform. But during our conversation, Carlton made clear that it is just not that simple. So much of my body of work is about offering myself and my community reflections of our self as beautiful and as strong. Um, but when people go and they Google me and they see my work and they see Black Men Smile and they see all these reflections, you, you cannot miss that that is, that is an act of resistance. 
that is no more important than, but no less important than the radical acts of resistance that we're seeing in the streets, the radical calls for change, um, the expressions of joy that you see me embody are not detached from the real life experiences of something that looks totally different than the images that I'm putting into the universe. But don't get it messed up. Don't get it twisted. Um, do not think that we're just around here smiling and happy. And do not think that we are doing any of those things with you in mind or to decrease the discomfort that is being experienced by people who are collectively either confused or feeling guilty or not knowing what to do with um, us seizing this moment to make demands and to, and to make these proclamations and that we can no longer and we will no longer wait. This is a moment for all of us to seize, to capitalize on to, and, and whatever it looks like, whether it is a radical restructuring of the way you live life, of your relationships, of being with partners who are racist and that you've uh, accepted, of being a part of organizations that you have a, a, an influence within, but that you've accepted the excuses for why it's not quite the time. This is the time. Um, it is both the time to dismantle and it is the time to, to build. And that is the stretch. That is the movement toward which we will be able to obtain and to make sustainable um, beyond this moment. What you're saying to me just feels so uh, rich and meaningful because it's about the paradox of how it feels on the inside and how it might look to others on the outside. Um, and Melissa, I wonder if that's something, you know, you are a person who takes portraits. So you are capturing images of what people look like on the outside, but obviously trying to get to what's in. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on the kind of stuff that Carlton is talking about, that distinction between the image and the perception. Absolutely, I do. I could put it to you like this, um, being a storyteller and being someone who enjoys hearing stories, with this Juneteenth takeover that we're going to be doing, um, I struggled internally with what images I would offer. I know that the more sensational is the fist in the air, right? The more sensational, the more, uh, I guess, what people would want to see now is the person that's running in front of the burning building that, you know, that has been set on fire, um, the marching, the, all of that. Um, instead, I listened to myself and I offered photos of a Black man kissing his baby because that, to me, is the experience I know. That, to me, is a reminder of who we are, right? When you're pushed into a corner for hundreds of years, yeah, black rage is real, right? It's gonna come out and it's gonna come out in volatile ways. It's not gonna be easy. Um, Gil Scott Heron said the revolution will be no rerun. The revolution will be live. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. Right? This is what we're experiencing right now. For years, we have been trying to explain that we're a people. We have a communities. We have love. We have, we have, we have blood running through our veins. 
how long do we have to beg to be seen as something other than three-fifths of a human? I'm tired of trying to prove our worth, right? And because I think there have been generations of trying to prove that worth to other people, that I seek to remind us of who we are, right? And so when someone sees my portfolio, they may say, do you take pictures of white people? (laughs) Because a large part of my clientele, a large majority of my clientele is black. That's not something that I sought out. That's not something that I was, that's by design. That just happens to be what it is, right? I have no problem taking pictures of anybody. Again, I like hearing everyone's story. Um, However, it's not lost on me that a large body of my work concerns us. And when I say us, I mean Black Americans. It's our story. So then what does it feel like for you when you're seeing, uh, you know, such diverse crowd of people showing up in huge numbers at these protests and, and widespread protests? So when I see these protests with, you know, Black, White, Asian, you know, like, like Latinx, like you see everyone together marching for something. Now, maybe it took for a pandemic for, uh, for white people to sit at home and, and say, dang, that's horrible, right? What happened to George Floyd with that knee on his neck for nine minutes, right? Um, I, I, I'm not sure what it is, but maybe it's a, I pray that it's a collective awakening. I pray that it's, it's empathy entering the hearts of those who have been complacent and who have been like, well, wow, that's horrible but that's not me. That person doesn't look like me. So how can I empathize with that person? The fact that the person who had the knee on their neck for nine minutes and who was in a chokehold and who was playing at a park by himself uh, and was killed or or, um, a young boy who was walking home with Skittles and tea, uh, a, a woman who was just pulled over, a woman who was sitting in her home, all of these people killed. Um, maybe it puts, it puts something in someone else's head to say that could have been me or how would I feel if that was my sister or my father or my mother or my brother, right? It, I pray that this moment allows people to see outside of themselves. And you know, maybe it's wrong of me to say, or maybe it's politically incorrect, but that does not come from black people right now. The, the charge is not on us to convince anyone anymore. I refuse to try to convince anyone to see my humanity or my daughter's humanity or my brother Carlton's humanity. I refuse. The onus, (laughs) the onus is on white people to open the conversation within themselves. Uh, My black art, because I'm a black artist, right? My black art, if you want to enjoy it, if you see it, and you're like, wow, this touched me. I'm grateful for that. Maybe we can have a conversation. However, the larger talks, while I'm, in, I'm, I'm glad to be invited into the space, the larger talks need to happen amongst white people and their kinfolk to say, you know, you, you have the awareness now, right? You have the awareness and that's great that you've always maybe had that awareness, but now it's time to talk to your cousins and your aunties and your uncles and your mothers and your fathers who have been through, a, a, you know, are a product of, 
you know, the time that they were raised. Um, but it's very important to understand that in order to move forward with any kind of real, like, you know, people love painting America as this kumbaya and it's anything but, right? Um, in order to move forward with some real progress, some real, like, you know, you got to get to the nitty gritty. You got to get down into it. You have to dive into those places that you don't want to accept. You can, it, it, like, to me, who I am, it's okay to say, you know what? I haven't been around a lot of Black people, so I don't completely trust them. I don't completely understand. I can only go off of what I've seen in TV and all of these things. It's okay to say that because you're admitting something, but to just outright not, not care and to not try to do something, um, the time for ignorance has passed. How many times does someone need to die or uh, to be murdered brutally? Those last moments of George Floyd's, Floyd's life, he called out. He called out for his mother, who had already passed. He knew he was going to die for something as simple as a counterfeit bill. It, it brings to mind, you know, the, the the lynching museum in Alabama. And you read the reasons why those black people were killed, right? For for not walking across the street properly or looking looking at someone quote unquote the wrong way, lynched, killed, burned, murdered, whole families are 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 dead. I don't have space in myself. I'm not gonna say forgive, but we never forget, right? We never forget. That is the legacy that, that America has built, right? And it's not something that we can sweep under the rug. However, moving forward, I'm very hopeful that we can, that our, that we can be together, that we acknowledge it, but that doesn't mean that we have to continue the legacy forward. It's such, you know, rich stuff that you're raising and you're talking about, you know, what, this is the whole thing about art, isn't it? You know, the, yeah. the, the empathy that you were talking about, that when people see your photographs, they engage with it. And even in the most sort of macabre, horrific way, you know, the, the, the visual element of seeing George Floyd, this is what convinced so many human beings like, oh, my God, we're witnessing a man's murder. Right. Can I, can I ask you something, though? Sure, sure. What? In your opinion, what made George Floyd different than anyone else? Actually, it wasn't so different. I mean, you know, I think it was right after Ahmaud Arbery and the, but we didn't, you know, seeing the film of Ahmaud Arbery or yeah. hearing the story of the bird watcher in Central Park, you know, um, uh, Breonna Taylor hearing that story. What made that? I think it's like you said, uh, Melissa, actually, you know, we were all in at home the whole COVID thing, you know, the, the you know, everyone's terrified, right? And mm -hmm. and seeing all this news about, you know, black people being uh, uh, disproportionately affected and dying. And then, and then like, again, again, I just, I don't know. It, it's, I think the horror of seeing him call for his mother and his life drained out of him. 
And I think that was, uh, you know, why did that, why did, was that the tipping point? I think there are a lot of different things. That took it to, you know, as a mom to a 10 year old, um, as a daughter, right? Um, those last moments you come into the world through your mother and you leave calling for her. Um, it's intense. I, I, to this day, I pray that I never see that video. I, I, I don't think any of us can forget the videos of the last moments of the lives of Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd or Eric Garner or Walter Scott or Philander Castile. I mean, it's just a woefully long list. But, you know, Carlton, you said now is the time to dismantle the system and to build. So... So after the grief and, and pain of images like these that stay with us, how, how does your work construct something new, some, some other story? I've been exploring this idea around how much symbolism was involved in the things that we're talking about that was that the horrific images that we've seen and, and the work that must go into imagining oneself as something um, other than that. I think that what Black people can do and what the work of Melissa is doing and what the work that I'm trying to put out there is doing is centering Black, the Black narrative and Black joy so that Black people can accept for themselves their own freedom. So that everyone around me that comes in contact with me or my art in their own form of marginalization as, and oppression, as women, as gay folk, as people who are other abled, um, as people who are brown, as people who are immigrant, um, can celebrate the sound of hearing their chains fall onto the ground by engaging with me and my work. That is, that is the power of the Black voice right now, particularly, particularly right now, is that I think that if I can embody my liberation as fully as I, and, and claim it as my own and live it and express it and show it and show up as it, you can't help but want some of it. And what I'm gonna commit to for black people is to see me and to see my work and to see themselves as already there, as already free, as not waiting on the laws to pass, not waiting on white folk to watch the movies, not waiting on the companies to do whatever, but this black man is already living and expressing himself fully as who he knows that he is. And you as a woman, you can't help but, but know that yours is possible. Because if I can do and be that right now, what are you waiting for for claiming your own? That is what and who I want to be. And um, it is what I'm committing to. And it is what I want my people to commit to and to live and to embody. Yes. Yes. It's just how do you undo so many years? How do you forget so many years? And time and time again, rise. We've known that Black Lives Matter. And so we stand in that fully. We stand in that fully.
Well, this conversation took a totally different turn that I thought, and I'm so grateful to have been a part of it. Melissa Alexander, thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you for having us. And Carlton, for, um, thank you uh, for your thoughtfulness, for uh, your, uh, at first I was thinking vulnerability, but now I think just pure strength. I'm really, really grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was my conversation with Melissa Alexander, an Atlanta-based photographer. She was recently profiled in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for her series of pull-up portraits during coronavirus. We will link to that along with her Instagram. She Instagrams as Phyllis Iller and also to Kwame Brathwaite's photography book called Black is Beautiful. The images are just stunning and I really want you to see it. And Carlton Mackey, Director of the Ethics and the Arts Program at the Emory University Center for Ethics. He is also creator of Black Men Smile and Beautiful in Every Shade. We'll post a link to both of those as well. All of that's going to be at the On Second Thought tab at gpbnews.org. They are just two of the African-American artists who have work on display as part of the Juneteenth Takeover. We're going to leave you with a song that Carlton chose from John Coltrane's Giant Steps album. This is Naima. Happy Juneteenth weekend and happy Father's Day to all of the fathers, the surrogate fathers, stepfathers, the father figures, the fathers who are no longer with us. May their memory be with you in a beautiful way. Thank you for spending some time listening to On Second Thought from GPB.